Should we stop spoon-feeding our school students? And if so, why? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with educational neuroscience since 1999. If you're looking for science-based language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And you can subscribe to this podcast completely for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or on your favorite podcast service, or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Spoon-feeding students is a controversial topic that often gets talked about with a negative vibe. It's certainly something that teachers complain about having to do sometimes in order to get results, and yet, it also seems like something that our education systems are trying to stamp out. Why is that? My guest today is Richard Andrew, who's been working in teacher professional learning for the past 10 years and now runs all of his courses in the online space. He recently posted an article on LinkedIn as to why we shouldn't spoon-feed students, claiming that spoon-feeding robs students of the opportunity to take responsibility for their own learning. But still, the question remains, why? Why should we stop, given that the world has produced plenty of talented and highly skilled people, despite our misgivings about our education systems? In this episode, I tease out this issue with Richard a bit further and suggest some practical ways to make the shift towards a more student-centred approach to learning. Richard Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Colin. You're a specialist in the online learning space, and you do all of your work in the online space. You don't actually see people uh, in person. Can you give us a quick rundown of what that actually looks like? Well, it is uh, it is unusual, I must admit, I think. Um, I used to run – so I'm in professional learning with teachers, so I run professional learning courses, um, and I, I'm a, I've been teaching for 25 years – um, in a face-to-face environment, obviously, then ended up running professional learning face-to-face courses. And then in 2009, a decision was made for me to start exploring online learning. So there was a couple of years where I had some courses that ran online and face-to-face, and that that gave me a chance to compare. And I've, I found it interesting because I thought, you know, I had a good sense that I was getting better outcomes online than I was in the face-to-face, and I was sort of trying to work out why that was. Um, we can talk about that later if you wanted to, but... Um, you know, f- nearly ten years on, well, seven years on now. I've, I'm not. I don't run face-to-face workshops anymore, and I just find having a like a four-month guided learning journey where where teachers can learn stuff and then uh, implement strategies and ideas and files and whatever in their classrooms with their students for for a period of time and then report back. I find that model really works well. So it's purely professional learning. So there's no. Uh, interaction with online learning and students? Not directly. Indirectly there is because I've got a couple of courses that guide teachers through the the overwhelming task, potentially overwhelming task, of learning how to set up a blended learning situation for their students. But so it's, that's you could say that's an, um, indirectly affecting children in that way in the online space. But no, my, my, own, my own role is to affect uh, teachers and I do that online. Recently, in an online article, you wrote about spoon-feeding and uh, that we should stop spoon-feeding our students. And um, spoon-feeding is one of those things we often hear about, talked about with a negative vibe. And and if I can just look at your article there, you refer to spoon-feeding as any process which robs students of the opportunity to take responsibility for their learning. Now, before we talk about why that's the case, can you tell me what the top spoon-feeding techniques are? Can you, do you have a top three? Well, um, I would say one one is uh, an explicit technique 
so let's say let's say that I'm and let let's face it, I'm I'm as guilty I'm guilty of this uh, in the past. Um, so you know, so I was a teacher, and so I'm saying, okay, kids, this is what you need to know for the next test. It's coming up in two weeks. You know, make sure you know this, make sure you know that. Here's my notes. You know, blah blah blah. So so that's. That's a logical kind of a yes. We need to do that because we want our kids to pass. So that's an explicit, what I would say, an explicit way to spoon feed kids, um, kids, students. You know, um, then there would be an implicit, an implicit way. So I'm the teacher. You're the students. You're in the room, in this room, to learn from me. So I'm your guide, to, and uh, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. And and if you listen to me and follow what I say, you'll likely succeed. So that's kind of a. That's uh, I say that's implicit because that's just the kind of the agreement that we've bought into, um, yeah, so and that's do, I mean, uh, sorry. I was just going to say, in other words, do do what I do and know what I know, and you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, and and that's assuming that you know the the buy-in is a, a very teacher-directed um, you know approach, which was me for much of my career. Well, probably half the career, um, and and uh, so that's really. They're probably that you might be able to draw some more out of me, but on, as I'm just thinking about it, they would be the two. Uh, but I, but I mentioned, you know, I do think um, it tends to be held together. I've thought about this a lot, and it does tend to be held together by a teacher-directed approach. Um, I, I'm not sure how you spoon feed if you're if you're running uh, if you're if a facilitator in a in a classroom where you are allowing the students to be more self-directed so i don't i can't quite see how yeah well i mean i just think it's spoon feeding tends to be predicated on a a, a teacher centered approach I, I would think let me run this one by you you hand out an assessment task and you've got a piece of paper that outlines the task and a week later a student comes back to you and says, I lost the piece of paper. And the teacher <laughs> says, oh, that's okay. Here's another one. Is that an example? I think that is an example and I think that's the, the beauty of having a blended learning uh, situation where you go, that's fine, Charlie. Uh, you know where it is. Go find it. Or it's just on this link. You, you know, I showed you the other day. So then the student's empowered uh, so they don't need to tell the teacher they've lost the thing. They should have the initiative to to go to the online portal or wherever it is, download the new one, print it off, do whatever they want, and and so they can help become be yeah. You know, the students can help themselves by being self starters in that in that regard. You mentioned before that you were uh, guilty of the spoon feeding technique yourself, and suspect that many others are as well. Um, how do you think it became so normal? I, I've thought about this one as well, and, and I, I mean I'm not the only one to be be talking in this space obviously um i think if you go back to the start of formal education which is the start of the industrial era where, where teachers were employed to to you know impart a certain minimum amount of information on the on on the public so as in the public can go and become the workforce for the industrial machine um i don't imagine that there are any classrooms in those days for that purpose where free thought and and metacognition and you know discovery learning and all and all those sorts of things were in play so i think very much it's like okay we, we need you to te- teach you some basic english and maths and etc cetera, etc cetera, and some you know practical skills so that that's a very teacher purpose purpose built teacher directed approach and i think for the need that at the time it was more than more than adequate but the sad thing is 
that we've that was a few hundred years ago. And although there are some amazing things happening in a lot of teachers' classrooms, and there are some a few amazing schools that are really trying to change the paradigm. By and large, I would still say the predominant paradigm is very teacher directed, and it's not that far removed from from what we started with in the industrial era. And Sir Ken Robinson, everyone knows Sir Ken, um, would I mean, he argues this point um, over and over, as do many others. So, um, did that answer your question? I think so. It does. But let's just reflect back though, because let's uh, wind the clock back to the uh, pre-smartphone days, if we can even possibly remember what that's like, or the easy access to internet days, which is the late 90s. In fact, let's go back even further than that, a couple of decades before that. We were still producing, out of the education systems around the world, some pretty clever people, all right? So, you know, we had astronauts, we put uh, mm-hmm. people into space, we uh, designed uh, jumbo jets, we, we trained airline pilots, we got doctors, entrepreneurs, sure. and, and not just necessarily the maths and science sort of people, but we also have artists and performers, uh, and all kinds of stuff was actually happening before this massive new technology age. Why is this whole issue of spoon-feeding students and the, the new idea about education so important now? I mean, look, look at what we've already achieved and things don't seem to be slowing down. Why do we need to change the system? That's, it's a really good question. Um, I think the system is probably producing just as many high achievers. I, I don't think the... Yeah, it depends what – this is such a big question to answer, Colin. Well, that's, um, that's why we've got yeah, you on the show. No, no. no. Um, if you're looking at producing people to go into the space system, you know, in that area there's a lot of problems to be solved. And, in fact, the argument today is that where we're heading in this world, in this crazy world that we live in, is what we need is problem solvers, people who are going to come up with stuff, solve problems that have never been here before, and so they need to they need to be good problem solvers, um, skilled at, outside the box. So you know we still need a lot of direct instruction, but we need people to not just be you know spoon feedies, you know just taking information from someone who's lecturing to us. Um, but I don't. I'm not convinced that. Like, I am convinced that today we're producing just, probably just as many high achievers. I, I think a better question might be to might be to ask why did people like Einstein fail that system you know if if you uh, I mentioned Sir Ken Robinson before he wrote a book called The Element where he went around and interviewed a whole lot of high achievers from all sorts of fields Um, and you know and I've read a lot of other people as well it's interesting how a lot of these sorts of people didn't actually survive the conventional school system Um, so Einstein uh ironically was working in a patent office for three years and wrote his first major paper and then that's what got the attention of some universities and I think what what's this person doing writing this stuff he's working in a patent office so they gave him a professorship but he he did survive school but it was pretty tough on him because he was just an out-of-the-box thinker so um uh why the interest? I think I think also there's a lot more awareness that the status quo of what we've been having for, of what we've had for a long time, doesn't uh, fit the bill anymore. And maybe there's students who are less tolerant of that. There's a because the, the the school does really well. The school system, the traditional system, works well for I think a narrow percentage of the population, of the school population, student population, and I think there's much more. Um, 
awareness now and drive to to uh, make it work for a, a, a much wider percentage of that okay, student. Okay, so, so more of a democratization process. Yeah, maybe. Because, I mean, just coming back to the comment you made before, um, you say that we need more problem solvers, but yeah. coming back to the space race, right, you've got a bunch of people standing around saying, yeah. we need to get this object into yeah. space. Now, yeah. that's a fairly significant problem. Right. Is. Exactly. <laughs> or you've got a bunch of people around an operating table and there's a heart transplant that needs to take place. And that, that took place sometime yep. after the you know, after the beginning of the space race, of course. But still you've got a bunch of people standing around saying, here's a significant problem, we're gonna solve this. So by mm. democratizing the problem solving skill set, it sounds to me like well, we are actually capable of solving problems. Just look around you in the world of technology today, but maybe we just need to make that open to more people. Yeah, uh, yes. I, I think, yeah, perhaps you're saying that in, in the past where we have done well in a, in a narrow band of the student population, we need to expand that out. Um, like, I guess the other way of looking at that is if, if we have a, a, here we go, if we have a standards-based approach where we're, we're really, you know, sort of almost teaching to the test and very concerned, very concerned about what it is that we're teaching rather than uh, the, you know, inspiring kids to, to, you know, be passionate about certain field of learning and allowing them to go deep in that area and then come out of, of their education where, they might not know some of the stuff, but they really understand how to learn. And so when they hit university, they know how to learn. They, they, they're motivated. They're, they're intrinsically, um, you know, they are self-starters and they're not flummoxed by this, this sudden sh shift of gear where they're sitting in, in uni lectures and, and having all this stuff thrown at them and they don't know how to process the information or how to organize their time. You know, I think that's a, uh, yeah, that, that is an issue that I've, I've – of um, become aware of, you know, from university yeah. lecturers talking about it. So, um, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. No, but... I think it does. I think I think that relates to what I wanted to come to, and that is the the, the issue of student buy-in. Because yeah. often you walk into a class, and 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 kids mm. will be sitting there going, "Why am I here? I don't want to do this. This is boring." And yeah. and then a teacher will come in and say, "Hey, yeah, but I'm going to turn this into a student-centered environment now, and it's not going to be about the teacher." Well, what if you've got students who just look around the world and they go, well, I don't need to solve any more problems because other people are doing that for me. So, you know, here's an example. If they get sick, oh, they go down to the medical center. There'll be a doctor there. If they want yep. to drive from one city to another, oh, there's more than likely going to be a freeway there because some city yep. engineers have d designed some roads and then some guys have yep. gone out and built it. So, yep. you know, or they say, oh, I need to go and uh, live in a house. Oh, there's one I can buy. Or there's one that can be built as a project home. Yep. There's all these people who are solving everybody's problems. So you've got a buy-in situation where the student goes, uh, no more problems need to be solved. So I just want to entertain myself. Maybe I'll go and catch some Pokemons or something like that. Yeah. So w what if the student actually doesn't want to be at the center of the work or the learning? Great question. And so I... With a situation like this, I come back to toddlers because uh, I believe, I have no scientific data to back this up. It's, I'm just a human who thinks and, and questions and I've got a, a, a child of my own. Uh, it's late in life so I was able to you know, really think about the stuff and I've you know, been a teacher in a classroom for 25 years. I just think that humans are hardwired 
for inquiry, for self-directed learning. So you, look, you take a toddler. that You cannot teach a toddler how to walk. No one teaches a toddler how to walk. They don't say, well, here's the left foot now. Take your right foot. And move <laughs> I have foot. good memories of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but so how does, how does it happen? Well, the, the, the toddler wants to walk. Why? Because they see everyone walk. It's One, it's a much more efficient way, way to get around. It looks like fun. Everyone's doing it. So, so whether they see that they have a need for it or whether they just want to do it, they want to do it and they work it out and they fail so many times. And it's the same, I think it's the same. Like learning, you've seen this, you've got your own kids. The, the way they learn language, learn how to communicate, it's freaky stuff. Mm. And But they want to do it. You know, they yeah. don't say, well, I've got my 200 words and that's all I'm going to do. Um, and, and as it gets, it gets, you know, put Lego, like the old style Lego where that, or blocks, you know, where it's very creative, you can do whatever you like. There's an intrinsic desire to play with that stuff and see what you can do. And, I, and I, I know the sort of kids you're talking about, but I reckon they've just been shut down because you get them, you watch them outside of school and they're doing creative stuff on their skateboards or their snowboards or whatever else. You know, there is a level of creativity in what they do, but they, a lot of those kids don't see that learning is really, uh, for them, happens at school. So we've messed it up. So, the, t- the teachers have messed it up, haven't they? No, oh, no, I don't want to blame the teachers. <laughs> no, I seriously don't, because I think, I think, given the straitjacket, and I don't use that word lightly, that 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 teachers find themselves in, meaning the, the system. I think teachers, by and large, are doing an amazing job, and some are doing an incredible job. But, but, um, and I am, you know, with the work I do, I, I sort of work on. Pedagogy within those constraints, because there's still a lot you can do in the classroom. Even though you know we are, you know, <laughs> let's face it, the kids roll up. If I'm still in the school teaching maths or whatever I am, my kids roll up not because they have decided, hey, let's go to Mr. Andrews' lesson this morning. It's because it's ten o'clock, and that's when they have to be there because it's Tuesday. So, so they don't have any choice about going to that class. But there's a certain amount I can do to create a need to to conduct this thing called maths lessons or whatever lessons where the kids can actually have a, a lot of buy-in in terms of, you know, wanting to learn something within within those constraints. So, um, you know, the buy-in, yeah, the, the buy-in factor is a really good one. But, I, but I, I, you know, you're talking about problem solving. I think, I, I totally believe that humans just intrinsically by nature we are all self-directed learners. You, you, you ask an adult, how do they learn? They all say, well, I, you know, I have a need or a desire and then I go and find stuff or I go and watch some YouTube videos or whatever they do. Not many people, and certainly not me, like learning stuff because someone else is ramming it down their throat, you know, if, that they're totally not interested in. Yeah. So, so and I think that's the same pretty much with everyone. So it, it's pretty it's – t- it's tough when you're required to teach your kids something – that they really don't don't want to don't want to learn. More from our discussion with Richard coming up. If you'd like to hear another discussion on the spoon feeding versus student centred learning debate, then check out episode sixty one, where I discuss the issue with Simon Brooks. Students have looked at me and they said, "Come on, Mr. Brooks, get out the spoon. <laughs> yes, spoon uh, feed us. Yeah, feed me. Tell me what <laughs> I need to know in order to do well in this examination." You can find that episode by searching the Learning Capacity Archives. 
You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, or you can visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Now back to my discussion with Richard. Okay, so what happens then is that we've got a whole bunch of students in classrooms who are not buying into the concept of learning, and this mm. happens over time, and so the teachers go, well, maybe I should just hand them the stuff. And well, if, yeah. they, if they take yeah, it in, yeah. they take it in, and suddenly the spoon-feeding thing just creeps yeah. in. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. So, and so that refers, I think, some, to something else that you wrote in your article, and that was the concept of learned helplessness. So if, yeah. if there's... If there's this ongoing time where you think, well, I look around the world and there's nothing really that I have to solve or learn because every, anything can be bought or accessed somehow, so what's the problem? And after a while, well, I haven't really learned how to ignite my problem-solving self, so I'll mm. just become helpless and I'll learn that. Is yeah. that what you were getting at? Yeah. Look, can I just answer that by referring to a, a fantastic TED talk by uh, a Chinese guy called Dr. Tao and he, I don't know if you've seen it, but he, he, he gives this talk based on education but on his own experience of learning this particular skateboard trick as an adult, right? And, and his point through the whole thing was that he failed, you know, something like 530 times before he landed the trick and that his um, – that the the um, the the purpose was to learn the trick, and that there was no failure. So so you know, and then he, he had, in the video he had, you know, said how crazy would this be? And it had video footage of him not landing the trick, and that that was a C minus, and the next one was a, a B plus, and the next one was a D, and he said how how ridiculous is would that be? And so his whole thing was, you know, when when I, I, I expected to fail. I expected to fail a lot, and it, but it didn't bother me because you know landing the trick was the aim. And then if you look at what's happening in classrooms, kids have, I think, um, and look, this, this it's just the system sort of. Um, it's no one in, intends for this to happen, but you know you 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 know you 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 read or try and read something a number of times, and, and you're not doing very well, so you get put in a remedial class, and and. And you know, there's judgments, and and so you're in the lower group, so automatically think on you're not much good at reading. Well, then you're not going to want to read books because yeah. no one yeah. likes doing stuff they're not very good at. And so there's this failure mindset. Um, so you know, I think that so the learned helplessness is well, you know, I'm doing maths. I've, I was hopeless at, at year five, at year one, and I was hopeless in year two and year three. And by the way, year four, five, and six, and now I'm in year eight, and I'm still hopeless at it. And you know, I'm not going to put my hand up. You know, that's just this learned helplessness. Yeah. And it's very difficult to turn that around in, in, in the space of, um, you know, a couple of months. But it's something we need to work on. I was just thinking about your uh, comments on failure there and how toddlers learn language. Something that I've noticed with my own son is that as he's mm-hmm. learning language, he has absolutely no fear of failure of using, yes. of using language incorrectly. So he won't use grammar correctly because he doesn't – obviously, he's still learning the grammar. Yeah. Um, but there's 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 no concept in his mind that doing something wrong is yes. is is a problem, yet and and I find that also with uh, with primary kids that's but, so le- could, it's less of an issue than it is with se- with uh, secondary kids. Yeah, well, I think yeah, but and I think but at that point, if you were one of those parents that picked him up on every time he made a mistake, so to speak, in in, in quotation marks, and said, no, 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 you, you shouldn't say that, but you've got to say it this way. Now, repeat it after me 10 times. If you were <laughs> that sort of an idiotic parent, um, then then your son would, his progress would slow right down, wouldn't it? 
Well, he'd start to feel like not talking so much. I would imagine. I mean, I'm just guessing. Yeah. But, you know, if you're constantly yeah. being hammered about something you're doing wrong, you're, you're less likely to want to do it. So, if you know, if, if teachers want to go to a student-centered model and stop spoon feeding their kids, let's say they want to straightjacket themselves, to use your term, and say, right, I'm going to stop spoon feeding my students. Mm. What are the barriers? What are their roadblocks? Well, can I just say that you know that. I, I don't view the the reason to go to a student centered model isn't to stop spoon feeding. I mean, I mean, that's what I'm saying is that's not the way I would look at it. I would say the reason to go from a very conventional teacher directed model to a student centered model, apart from differentiation and all those sorts of things, is because there's an intrinsic engagement that occurs when a kid has some choice about what they do and when they do it, and it can be the simplest of things. But, you know, it could simply be, you know, in, in the mathematical space, for example, you might be doing something, you might put five lists of different sorts of grades of questions on the board and you give them the option of, you know, picking whatever list they're at and you do three, three questions and then move on. Just, in, just doing that, you would be amazed how much in extra engagement the kids get rather than, right, you've got to go through this textbook and you've got to do all those, you know, every odd question on the first page. So offering Whether choice that, is a offering choice is a choice, simple place to start. Choice is amazing, you know. Or you, you, you know, you've got, um, you know, you're doing a topic, and so you can break it up into five kind of themes, and and you say you, you do three out of the five. Well, just there, you know, they they can actually make some choice. How do we best communicate well, this to parents? Do you think there's going to be a freak out factor there? Yeah, of course there will be. Um, <laughs> Silly question, well, right? <laughs> well, what's what I find a little bit tragic is that you know I've got a number of courses that I run, and but the bottom line is that they all sort of steer or give teachers the opportunity to go more down the student-centered path. And and I have some teachers who say, "Well, look, I love this stuff, but I wouldn't be able to do it one because my head of department wouldn't wouldn't." Oh, buy. The, the head of department. Right. <laughs> now um, there's a roadblock. <laughs> well, it can be, uh, but I mean that's it's it's not not common, but but it's pretty tragic when that occurs. Well, like where someone you know what what used to annoy me in schools is it, it's the it's sort of the lowest common dom- denominator that rules the roost in the department. So you know the the those powerful types who just want us want no change. That's that's how the department's got oh, to operate. Richard, say it isn't so. <laughs> Um, and uh, that that sort of dynamic can play out. But but then you know the other thing is that you've got teachers who get re- really enthusiastic and they they go down this track, and then the parents come in um, accusing them of not you know of not teaching Johnny anymore. But and yet what this teacher is trying to do is actually get get Johnny to take some responsibility for their learning. Now that's tragic, but I do think probably what happens there is the teacher goes in all guns blazing without any forewarning. Mm. So. So, you know, one thing I advocate is, well, first of all, with the kids, you, you deal with the objections before they rise. I, I used to do this all the time. If I think there was possibly going to be some objection, I'd go, right, our kids, look, I've really thought about this. We're going to implement a new kind of thing. We haven't done this before. I reckon a lot of you are not going to like this, you know, for, so I'm not going to listen to really any complaints too much for the first month. But, but, you know, let's see how we go after that. And I knew if I said that, they want to prove me wrong. So yeah. what well, you're happen still giving is, them. Sorry, I was just going to say you're still giving them an, an implied choice, though, aren't you? You're, you're yeah, forewarning yeah. them of a choice they can make down the track. Well, yeah, and and you know, and then they they invariably say to me, "Oh, you know how you said we were going to like that? We really like it." <laughs> <laughs> and that that happened a, a lot of a lot of times, you know. Um, but 
but I think in this case with the parent thing, you know, a, a meeting or a letter home or something, just, you know, you could easily um, disarm or, you know, it's called dealing with the objections before they rise. It's a standard marketing technique, but it works really well in education as well. So, you, you know, you need to um, do, if you think objections are going to come up from anywhere, even if it's the principal, whatever, um, deal with those objections before before they arise, and and then I think you're going to have a much uh, much smoother smoother ride. But the other thing is that teachers will, you know, try this stuff and go, oh, it wasn't that successful. But these kids have been spoon fed in a teacher directed way for nine years, and yeah. then they've run yeah. this thing for two weeks and expect change. Yeah, you got to you got to um, have some realistic expectations, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So, Richard, how do we find out more about you and the resources you have for working in this space? How can we connect with you? Well, I've got the um, the brand uh, that I've set up is Learn, Implement, Share. So all of my courses run under that brand. Dot com. And there's a, yeah, there's a website, learnimplementshare.com. Um, so all the information is there. So uh, basically, and the good thing about these courses, they're not they're not um, curriculum specific. So really, any any English speaking teacher working in an English speaking school can do these courses. So I've you know I've Recently, I've had one from Palestine, one from Israel, which is interesting, uh, a couple from America, one from Singapore, a few from New Zealand, mostly still from Australia, though. So it's kind of nice, broaden the horizons. And can people contact you directly? What if they want to ask you a question as a result of this podcast? They're just uh, richard at learnimplementshare.com um, or just go to the site and shoot, shoot through a contact. Richard, you've got a, uh, a clear passion for what you do there. So uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Colin. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about my guest, Richard Andrew, visit learnimplementshare.com. And if you'd like to know more about language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.